We are wrapping up our short series through the book of Colossians. I'm kind of curious as we kind of finish up these four chapters, Jesus over everything, how many of you made it all four weeks and you took the challenge, you read through Colossians three times a week for the last four weeks. Did anybody complete that challenge? All right. So you, let me ask you this. Did you receive I don't have a, a reward to give you for that, a sticker, a, a cla- I don't know, but did you receive a reward from the Lord in, in doing that? I'm, I'm sure that you did. did. Did those of you who read through Colossians at least once on your own time, how many of you did that over the last month? Okay, did you receive a reward? Was that helpful? I'm imagining that it was. You get a chance to do it all over again next month when we do Philippians throughout November, so um, if you... If you didn't uh, come up with uh, all four weeks or whatever, that's okay. Hopefully the time that you spent there was profitable. It was beneficial to you. I I am confident that it was. Chapter 1, if we just go back and review, chapter 1 of Colossians explains why Jesus is over everything, because He is supreme. He is highest in authority. He is highest in power. He is highest in rank over all creation. Chapter 2 then cautioned us with several warnings to make sure that we never forget that Jesus is over everything. Because if we forget that, if we walk away from that truth, we could risk harm. We could risk harm in our spiritual lives. We could risk harm in our relationships. And we could even risk missing out on something better by simply forgetting that Jesus is over everything. We need to keep Him in first position, in first priority in our everyday lives. And then last week we talked about how do we do that. We can agree that that is a a biblical truth, but then to, to think through how practically we live that out every day is what we talked about last week. And And uh, Paul reveals in chapter 3, the way we do that is by setting our hearts, setting our minds on Jesus over everything in our lives. Every desire, every passion, every priority, every accomplishment in our lives. And it's not just on a personal basis. We, yes, need to ask that question personally, how can I put Jesus first over my desires, over my passions, over my priorities. That's a personal thing. Today, as we finish up chapter 3 and, and jump a little bit into chapter 4, uh, we're going we're gonna to see the importance of asking that same question when it comes to our relationships. Putting Jesus over our relationships. I have a, a friend who is a pastor in California who said something once that I found to be absolutely profound. And if you are thinking, wait a minute, can something good come out of California? Uh, they used to say that about Nazareth too, right? Can something good come out of Nazareth? And yes, yeah, something did. And, and I just found this statement uh, to be so profound. Here's what it is. Pastor Phil Sparling, he's uh, from Northern California, he said, the quality of life is in direct proportion to the quality of our relationships. I want to say it again. I want you to think about this. The quality of our life is in direct proportion 
to the quality of our relationships. I absolutely believe that's true. When our relationships are strong and healthy, life is better. Life is more enjoyable when our relationships are strong and healthy. You know, the world could come unglued. And there's probably been some days when you feel like, man, the world is unhinged. And the world could come unglued. But if we have strong, healthy relationships in our lives, what a huge difference that makes as we walk through challenges in life. If you've got someone to walk through the darkness with, man, it's, I'm not saying it's easy, but it makes it better. Quality of our life is in direct proportion to the quality of our relationships. The rest of this letter, we, we didn't quite finish up chapter 3. We stopped about halfway through. The rest of this chapter, spilling out over into chapter 4, is about how putting Jesus over every relationship in our lives will result in strong healthy relationships. How many of you would say, I want strong, healthy relationships in my life? All right, and there's a few of you uh, apparently like, no, I'd rather have toxic, terrible relationships. Uh, so if that's you, uh, hopefully what we talk about today will convince you otherwise. Uh, if, you, uh, if, if you didn't raise your hand, hopefully what we talk about will make you convinced that this is better, that this is better. So let's dig in. Chapter 3, if you join me in verse 18 of Colossians 3. Now, here's how we're going to do this. Uh, Colossians 3, the last part, is a parallel passage to Ephesians 5 and 6. Paul talks about some of the very same things. And Ephesians, those, those instructions in Ephesians, I think, are even more in-depth. They give a little bit more richness to what we're talking about. So I'm going to read both. So it's up to you if you want to flip back and forth, they're only a few pages apart, or if you just want to follow along in Colossians and listen to Ephesians, uh, whatever's best uh, for you. But we're going to dig in here to uh, Colossians 3, we're going to start in verse 18. This is about marriage relationships, marriage relationships. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord, Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. In Ephesians 5.22, it says, For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up His life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's Word. He did this to present her to Himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of His body. 
as the Scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united in one. That is a reference back to creation, the very first marriage between Adam and Eve. This was God's design from the beginning. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Let's jump right into the word that probably caught your attention. The word submit, which is a very countercultural concept or idea uh, in 2021 America. What are we supposed to do with this word submit? Uh, when it comes to our marriage relationships between a husband and a wife. First of all, let's talk about what it means and what it doesn't mean. The word does not mean slavery. The word does not mean subjugation. The word means to willingly follow the leader. That's what it means, to willingly follow the leader. Men, listen, God has placed the responsibility of leadership on the shoulders of men. And it's not something that we should take lightly. And if, if, you, if you hear me say that and your thought goes to, well, that sounds outdated, that sounds sexist, I would ask you to consider a couple things. Number one, the divorce rate in our country is over 50%. You know this to be true. And when you look at the cultural views on marriage right now in our country, I don't have a lot of confidence that they know what they're talking about. I am convinced that God has something better than what our culture has to offer us when it comes to how to do marriage. I'm convinced of it. And number two, when men take this leadership responsibility seriously and they lead like Jesus, most women are going to find freedom in that. They're going to find confidence in that. When men take this leadership responsibility seriously and we love and lead like Jesus, uh, there, is, there is something special in store for wives in that marriage relationship. Men, look, look carefully at your leadership responsibility in, in these two passages. There's, there's one word there that summarizes your responsibility as a man as you lead, the word love. Did you notice that? And it's not love... Like, uh, the, like, like the feeling of you know, the butterflies. It's not that. It's not the romantic comedy stuff. That's not what this love is. This love is sacrificial. Did you see the example there in Ephesians? That Jesus, he's the standard of love, sacrificial love, died for the church. Therefore, we as men are to love our wives with this level of sacrificial love. There's a serving love. 
when it comes to our leadership as men. A Jesus-centered leader in the home, in the family, is not a dictator. He's not the Lord over the wife or the family. We've got one Lord. His name's Jesus. It's about leading and loving like Jesus. It's about asking questions like, what is best for my wife? What is going to bless my wife? What will demonstrate love to my wife? What will make my wife feel valued? What will make her feel safe? What will make her feel confident? At the same time we're asking those questions, we need to be asking questions like, what's going to please the Lord? What's the right thing to do here in the eyes of God? How do I put Jesus first in my relationship with my wife? If we're asking those questions as men, I I don't know why a wife would have a hard time following a leader like that. Let's just be honest with one another. If, you're, if your marriage doesn't look like God's design, let's just explore the possibilities as to why. Maybe your spouse is not a believer. Maybe your spouse is not interested in following Jesus. That happens. What do you do with that? Well, the first thing you do every single day is pray. You pray that God would grab hold of your spouse's heart and uh, would soften it, and that he or she would, would surrender their heart and life to Jesus and be changed. You pray for them, and in, along the way, you do your absolute best to be the kind of woman, the kind of man that God has called you to be. Maybe it's possible that the husband, if uh, your marriage doesn't look like God's design, maybe the, the husband needs to be a better leader. Maybe, guys, you need to step up and just be a better leader. Maybe it's possible that the wife needs to be more respectful. Maybe the wife needs to encourage her husband to lead. I don't know what it might be, but here's what I do know. If, if I'm given two choices and the choice is between let's do marriage the way the culture says to do marriage and do Marriage the way God designed it to be. I'm picking, I'm going with God. He, he's got more wisdom. He's got a better track record. I don't trust myself and I don't trust the culture. I trust God. I'm going to pursue His design. And I'm not saying I always get it right. I don't. I fall short way more often than I would like to. But that's the direction I want to move in for God's design for marriage. Because I know that's my best shot of having a healthy, strong marriage relationship. The quality of our life is in direct proportion to the quality of our relationships. And if we've got a strong marriage relationship, life is better. Life is better. The next set of relationships that we see in the text is our family relationships between a parent and a child. Go back here to Colossians 3.20. Children, always obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not aggravate your children, or they will become discouraged. 
jump back to the Ephesians passage, it says, Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. So that's a reference back to the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses. It's been around a long, long time. And there's a promise attached to it. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you will have a long life on the earth. Whose promise was that? That's God's promise. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. You see how both children and parents have a responsibility towards one another, just like any other relationship, whether you're talking about a husband and a wife or any other friendship. In a relationship, there's a responsibility towards one another. That's how relationships work. So, Children, your responsibility, according to God, towards your parents is to obey, to honor, to respect them. So those who are uh, in, in that age group, that middle school, high school student, uh, when you get into that age, uh, you, you are at this place when rational thought is developing. Right? When you're young, there's not a rational thought. Uh, that takes a little while to, to be able to do that, to think abstractly. But at some point in, in a child's life, they begin to have the ability to think rational abstract thoughts, to ask hard questions, and that's good. It is good. We want our children to learn how to think, how to evaluate, how to process information and come to good conclusions. We want that. Students, there may be times, as you develop that ability, there may be times when you see inconsistencies in your parents. That's probably going to happen from time to time. They may not always put Jesus over everything. Even if they want to move in that direction, and that's a goal in their everyday lives, they're not always going to get it right. But unless your parents are telling you to do something sinful, something outside the boundary lines that God has established, God expects you to obey. God expects you to respect and honor your parents. Even if you think your parents are being unreasonable. Now, if you're an adult, can you think back into your teenage years? Were there moments when you thought your parents were being unreasonable? Yeah, that's, that's part of growing up. That's part of the tension of, of learning how to think for myself and then and, and, uh, managing that tension between uh, parents who know that you're wrong. And as you go through that, that process of growing up and you think, man, I wish my parents would give me more freedom and let me do what I want when I want. Okay. It's okay to have that conversation. It's okay to ask those questions, but you need to do it with respect. It's never okay to sass. You know what that word means? You ever, you know, talk back, yell. That's not appropriate. It's never okay. You might have a different opinion, and you may want to express that opinion and have that conversation. It's not okay to do it with disrespect. 
I would say this, student, if, if that's happened, if that's been the pattern of your communication with your parents, you need to ask for forgiveness, and you need to do it today. That has to change. Parents, did you notice the responsibility that God gives to you? Right, it's, it's both directions. The responsibility as, uh, as a parent is to lead with love, to teach them to obey God, to teach them what it means to love God, what it means to love other people, to do what is right, to discipline with consistency and love. And that's hard. It's hard because there's like this balance between being too uh, permissive and, and too restrictive, being too mild or too harsh. It's hard to find that balance at times. I can remember when Hannah was born, I remember, that's my oldest if you don't know, my, my oldest daughter Hannah, she's in college now, and I can remember when she was born thinking and praying about this. Just feeling this overwhelming weight of not wanting to mess this up. As I held her in my arms and I just felt that enormous weight and I remember praying, Lord, I know that this season of life is going to go way faster than I want. And I know that being a good dad is going to be way harder than I realize. Lord, please help me to get this right. I, I, I don't want my daughter, when she's in her 20s, to have to be in therapy because of the trauma or the pain that her dad caused her along the way. And I'm dead serious. I prayed that. I didn't want to be a lousy dad. I didn't want to unintentionally... Uh, cause harm along the way just because I didn't know what I was doing. And I thought, you know what, I know I'm not perfect. I know I, I'm not going to trust myself to figure this out. I'm certainly not going to go to the culture to help me figure this out. I was thankful that I had godly parents. I was thankful that I had godly grandparents to kind of uh, give me a, a pattern. They weren't perfect, but they, they certainly gave me some insight into what it should look like in a lot of ways. But I just I, I wanted to feel more confident, and so I, I intentionally read everything I could get my hands on that would help me understand a Christian perspective on how to be a good dad. And I have a few of those books up on the screen. If you've got kids at home, these are, of all the ones I've read, these are some of the best uh, the one there in the middle, the first one I ever read was Bringing Up Girls by Dobson, and it was powerful. Uh, it was one of those things, guys, if you've got daughters, I don't care what age they are, read that book. And uh, when my son was born, I think before he was born even, uh, I started reading Bringing Up Boys, and uh, just a really, really good read. This one over here, Making Your Children Mine, if you want a really good practical book on how to discipline with consistency, how to, how to do discipline in your everyday lives as a parent, that's probably the best book I've ever read on, on Christian discipline, how to do it well. Uh, I, I grew up, I, I think my, my, my parents did the best they could, uh, honestly, and I grew up kind of at the tail end of you know, the whole... Uh, spanking thing where it was like we're going to beat beat the living tar out of you and that somehow is going to make you a better person or whatever 
And so I, I grew up on, under that, and it was worse. With, uh, you, the farther back you go, the more that was kind of ingrained. And so uh, some of you kids are like, what's a spanking, right? But uh, it talks about that, and there's, a, there's an appropriate time and place for, for that kind of thing, and, and I just thought it was a really good, a really good book. Um, by the way, if, if you're still spanking your 15-year-old, you're way past... You're way past uh, what you should be doing there. That's abuse. You know, you've, you've gone past your time. Anyway, uh, these two books were, were, these are interesting, right? So this is not what you would expect to find. You're probably not going to get these at the Christian book distributor, okay? That's probably not where you, I don't know that you'll find them there. Uh, but what I love about these two books, and I brought them with me, uh, that way if you wanted just to look through to see what was in it, what I love about these two books is it talks about some things that you can do practically with your children. And it just gives some really, really neat things that you can do with your sons. And because I know this is shocking to some in the culture, but boys and girls are different, right? I know that's not what you're hearing out there, but they are. And, and this talks about things that you can do with your daughters and things you can do with your sons that are really going to make that time with them meaningful and memorable. I love those two books. So I brought them along if you want to check them out before you leave. I, these other two ones uh, I, I grab because if you've got teenagers, the, grab these two books. You, know, you can take pictures of them and don't steal my books, okay? Don't steal my books. Uh, but you can take pictures of these, write down. This is about how to teach your children, especially when they get into that junior high age, maybe even before, how to have a Christian worldview. So important uh, to have a Christian, a biblical, I should say, a biblical worldview. Those are two really good books. Anyway, all that to say, I, I, wanted, to, I, I wanted to do whatever I could uh, to prepare my mind and heart to be, to be a good dad. I thought, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to look to the Connors or Roseanne on TV or a Modern Family. I've never seen Modern Family. I've seen the commercials. I get the gist of what it's about, and I'm not interested. I'm not interested in what Hollywood says on how to be a parent I don't, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in God's design because I, I know that's my best shot. Now, listen, sometimes you do your absolute best. You, you try as hard as you can. You do your best with it, and it doesn't always turn out the way you want, right? Sometimes that happens. But God's design for, for that parent-child relationship is our best shot at having a healthy, strong parent-child relationship. The quality of our uh, of our relationships, that's connected to the quality of our lives. It, it, let me, can I just do this real quick? Let me give you three things, just from my heart to your heart. When I think about parenting, and, and I'm getting closer to the other side of this, my son's going to turn 18 in January and headed off to college next fall and all this, so I'm, I'm getting closer to that side. Uh, here, here's some things that I've learned from reading, from observation, from failure, from experience and successes, all of that. Number one, some things that I've learned, three things. Number one, you've got to lead by example. You've got to lead by example. Follow Jesus consistently. You have to have a Jesus-centered life in such a way that it is normal in your family. It can't be abnormal, it can't be random, it can't be inconsistent. It has to be something that is normal. Following Jesus needs to be the norm in your family. Number two, communicate clear expectations. 
One of the things uh, from just when they were little all the way through, even to this day, that we have communicated to our children is this simple phrase, give God your best. No matter what you're doing, always give God your best, whether it's at church, whether it's at school, on the sports field, uh, in your friendships, always give God your best. We've, we've uh, talked about that since our kids were real, real small, and we still say that. That's the expectation that we set for our family. The other one I've already kind of alluded to, disrespect is not going to happen in our house. That's a clear expectation, not towards one another, not towards mom and dad. That uh, If that happens on the other side of the house, you can bet dad is coming. Because disrespect in the family is just not something that uh, is, is allowed to happen at the Lingenfelder home. That's a clear expectation. The other thing, and I got this from my parents, who probably got it from their parents, but I think it was helpful, and is that lying doubles the trouble. Their kids are going to make mistakes. They're going to they're going to do dumb stuff, and we need to be able to have honest conversations and discipline, and and we need them to be honest. And so what we communicated up front was, uh, lying is going to double the trouble. Double. Whatever it is that the discipline was going to be, it'll be twice as bad if you lie. And so those are just some examples of some of the clear expectations that we set for our kids. I think that's really, really important. And here's the third one, and I cannot overemphasize this one. You've got to love them. You have to love them. I don't mean like you know, your parental duty to love your kid. I mean, you've got you've to intentionally and sacrificially and practically find ways to show your kids that you love them. And you do that uh, with, with time, you do, and, and it's probably going to cost you something. You've got to sacrifice some things in order to do that well. You've got to spend time with your kids, and it's not always going to be in the things maybe that uh, you're into. It's, it's oftentimes going to be in the things that they're interested in. You've got to figure that out. You've got to say the words. You've got to have, you say the words, I love you, consistently every day. You've got to have honest conversations with them and, and ask them. I, I, I know it's frustrating, especially when they get in the teenage years. How was your day? Fine, right? And how, how's things going to school? Fine. That's kind of the answer that you get, and I understand that that can be frustrating. Push past the fine and say, no, seriously, how's things with your friends? How's things, and be specific. How's things going with this? with this uh, particular class or get as specific as you can don't let it go don't be irritating it says don't be irritating you know but don't let it go at the fine dig a little deeper have honest conversations and i'll say this too don't wait until there's a problem to have the hard conversations if the only time you ever have uh, those hard talks is when they're in trouble when there's a problem if that's the only time you ever walk into the bedroom and say we need to talk you're already behind. You need to be having honest, open, hard conversations when things are good. Because then when things are hard, when things uh, do get off the rails a little bit and we see some things that we don't like, now we've already established something uh, in our conversation that's normal. It's normal that dad walks into the room and wants to know how I'm doing and wants to talk about some serious things. It's not abnormal. Just some things from my heart to yours. Our world needs strong, healthy families. 
Think about the, 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 the mess that, that we see, not, not just in America, around the world. A lot of it stems from just messed up stuff in families. Our world needs strong, healthy families, and God offers us a plan to have one. And I trust Him. I trust His design for my best shot at having a strong, healthy family. The quality, the quality of our life is in direct proportion to the quality of our relationships. One more. How are we doing here? Okay, we're, we're, I'll, I'll go through this as quickly as I can. Our professional relationships. Go back here. And this one I know is, is kind of awkward. We're going to work through it together. Colossians chapter let's, uh, 3, let's go to verse 22. Slaves, oh boy, what are we going to do with that? Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you're serving is Christ. But if you do what is wrong, you will be paid back for the wrong you've done, for God has no favorites. Masters, be just and fair to your slaves. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. We skip over to the same instruction in Ephesians. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. That's where we got, give God your best. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. Now, it would be easy, I think, to jump right into the modern application of this text, the relationship between a worker and, and a boss in, in our professional relationships. You know, we, don't have, we don't have slavery anymore in, in our experience. But I think we need to take... Uh, at least a minute or two, and address the awkward question that's here. Why didn't Paul, why didn't the church of that day just openly oppose slavery and demand that it be, that it be destroyed and ended? It's a valid question. And what I'd like for us to do is just for a moment, let's step back into the first century world it's hard, I understand, because culturally, you know, we, we think about what, what we've experienced in America, and we understand that that was, that was wrong, you know, what we experienced with slavery in America, and, and we've moved past all of that, and uh, praise God. But let's do our best to step back into the first century world, into the Roman Empire. There were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, 60 million and they were viewed as property without personhood. Not as human beings of equal value. In the Roman Empire, a slave was viewed as property without personhood. That was how people thought. Civil rights were mostly limited to a Roman citizen. And there were, from time to time, there would be 
when it came to civil rights, uh, there would be rebellions that would pop up from time to time because people's civil rights, there wasn't much to them. Uh, and those rebellions were squashed quite quickly. Imagine uh, going up against the Roman military, the Roman Empire. Uh, it didn't end well for the rebels. It just you, you read about different rebellions and they get squashed and thousands of people die. It's the idea that a small group of Christians with no political power, with no political influence, would take on the Roman Empire, probably not a high priority on their list of priorities at the time. You know what was? The gospel. The gospel was their primary priority. The message of Jesus Christ dying as a sacrificial payment for our sin, rising from the dead, defeating sin, defeating death, and offering forgiveness, a new heart, eternal life, a transformed life, all through faith in Jesus and His gift of grace and trusting Him to be the Lord over everything in our lives. That was the gospel, the priority for those Christians. And to be honest, we can, we can be glad that it was because the gospel teaches us that there is no difference between races, there's no difference between ethnic groups or social status or economic status or age or gender, any other difference you could possibly think of. At the foot of the cross, we are all equal. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. There is no difference. The gospel teaches us that. That was the message that was working its way into the hearts of the first century. That was different. That was radical. This idea that, that Jesus doesn't look at our differences and decide who to give salvation to based on these differences, but rather gives freely to all who will have faith in Him, that was a different way to look at human beings than what they were used to. When this letter to the Colossians was taken from Rome, remember Paul is in Rome, he's in prison, writes this, writes this letter, uh, because Epaphras, one of the founders, Pap Epaphras and Philemon, right, they, they've got these problems brewing in their church, and they go and ask for help. Paul writes the letter, right? One of the men who took that letter from Rome to Colossae was a man by the name of Onesimus. Onesimus was a runaway slave from Colossae who ran away uh, apparently to Rome, meets Paul, meets Jesus, and gives his heart to the Lord. Paul then sends this letter with Onesimus back to Colossae. And it wasn't just that letter to the church, there was another letter to a man by the name of Philemon. You know who Philemon was? Philemon was Onesimus's master, his slave master. And this letter, you can read it, it's, re it's preserved for us in Scripture. That letter was all about this reconciliation, this, restored re this new relationship in Jesus, this new relationship between Onesimus and Philemon. And what's interesting about uh, this, this new relationship, Paul doesn't focus on trying to convince Philemon to set Onesimus free. He focuses in on 
making sure that they treat each other as brothers. Imagine this. Imagine if they start seeing each other as brothers in Christ, what that might do to that relationship. Radically different. Slavery thing is going to take care of itself. When our hearts change, that changes our morals, that changes our values, that changes the way we see other human beings. It changes uh, the, the way that maybe we've accepted things from our culture that don't match up with God's word, but we don't see it. We don't see it, but the gospel opens our eyes so that we can. Paul might not have come right out and told Philemon to set Onesimus free, but the gospel ignited change in people's hearts and people's minds. And it began, see, as the gospel began to spread, more and more people's hearts began to change. And over time, what began to happen, more and more people began seeing each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, began seeing the value that we have because we're created in the image of God, that we are persons, not property, that began to change. And the injustice of slavery began to become more and more obvious as something that was wrong and needed to change. The gospel did that. We went to see the musical Amazing Grace, and some of you may know that story. I mean, you've probably heard the song Amazing Grace. It's a good song, right? Written by a man by the name of John Newton, who was originally, uh, in his early life, he was a uh, slave ship trader. You understand what that means? That means that he would go to these, these countries where people would be kidnapped, uh, where, where, uh, where tribes would, would, would sell uh, people from other tribes into the slave trade. And he was part of that. Did terrible things. What was it that changed his life? It was the gospel of Jesus Christ radically changed his life. And a lot of us know that story. But what I didn't realize about that story until I watched uh, the musical at Lancaster Bible College, what I, re- what I didn't realize was this relationship between John Newton and the slave that raised him. His dad was off uh, with the business, not around much, and so there was this slave, the family's slave, that raised him, and then at one point in his life even saved his life. And yet when it came down to it, and John had the opportunity to return the favor, John betrayed him. Fast forward through the story, John comes to know Jesus, his life is radically changed, he goes from slave trader to a champion for the abolitionist movement. That was a radical change. And so he began uh, trying to change things uh, and change people's hearts and minds, and he wanted to find this man that he had betrayed. And he did. He found him. And when he found him, I want you to imagine this. Imagine you're the slave, and not only is that like you've got that to work through, that someone made you a slave, that this family made you a slave. Not only are you working through that, but here's, a, here's the young man that you raised, that you saved his life, and when it came down to it, he betrayed you. And now he stands before you and asks you to forgive him, to become uh, brothers. What in the world could possibly bring reconciliation to that relationship? Only one thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's what happened. The gospel. 
We look back in our own American history. It was gospel-believing Christians, including pastors from our own Karis Fellowship family throughout history in that time period. It was, it was pastors like the ones from our fellowship who spoke out and led the abolitionist movement. And so, yeah, we, we as Christians still need to be a, a voice for what is morally true in our country, but we, never, we should never forget to lead with the gospel. Never forget that the gospel needs to be our primary focus because that's what changes people's hearts. And when people's hearts are changed, their lives are changed, their morals are changed, their, their perspective, the, uh, their worldview is changed through the power of the gospel. That has to be our primary focus. Now, praise God, the relationship principles that Paul offers here to slaves and slave owners, that's, you know, we don't, we don't uh, have that experience, but those principles can apply to our professional relationships today. The relationship between a worker and a boss. So, just real quickly, be the best worker that you can be, show up on time, work hard, don't steal, be respectful, do it all for God. And be the best boss you can be, be fair. Be honest, be respectful. That responsibility goes both ways. Just because you're the boss doesn't mean that you don't have a responsibility to treat your employees the best that you possibly can. Because God says you do. Now there's, some, there's a really cool story that I don't have time to tell you. So I've already kind of set it aside and I'm going to tell you this story uh, from the rest of chapter 4 about a man named John Mark. I'm going to tell it tonight before we have our small groups, uh, you're not going to want to miss it. It'll be worth the price of admission tonight, which is free. So there you go. We'd love to have you come out tonight. The quality of our life is in direct proportion to the quality of our relationships. Listen, if you're looking to the government, if you're looking to your bank account to give you a greater quality life, you are looking in the wrong place. You can be rich, you can be powerful, but if the relationships in your life are a wreck, your life's going to be kind of miserable. I, I, I love in, in, the, in the opening announcements, we got to hear from that man, that young man from Rwanda. I want you to think about that. Here's a man who lost his family to genocide. That's tough, right? Poverty, no civil rights, genocide, that's, that's a tough life. And yet, as he's talking about how God blessed him in some of those relationships, we could be poor. We could have some things going on in our lives that are really, really tough. But if we've got strong, healthy relationships with Jesus and with some other people, and we're blessed. We're blessed. I hope you're going to have some really good conversations today that you'll ask some honest questions about the relationships in your life. Here's just two I would offer you. What could you do this week to put Jesus first in your marriage, in your parent-child relationship, in your professional relationships, in your friendships? What could you do this week to put Jesus first? Second question, who do you trust? I'm being dead serious. Who do you trust to figure this out? When it comes to how to be a good husband, how to be a good wife, how to be a good parent, what does it mean uh, to navigate through life? Who do, you, do you trust yourself to figure that out? Do you trust the culture to figure that out? I don't. I trust, I trust God. I trust Jesus over everything, and I hope that you will too.